So we are on the home stretch. Uh, don't give up. Seems like a lot of people have, but uh, we're on the home stretch of talking about ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church from the Greek word ekklesia, which means congregation or gathering or assembly. And uh, so we've been talking about what is the church, how should the church be ordered, those kinds uh, of things. And, uh, and then over the past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, sacraments. That's the historical word. Uh, if you grew up in a more Baptist context, you probably know it as ordinances, the ordinances or sacraments of the church. Uh, they basically mean the same thing. And, uh, and so uh, we spent a little bit of time, we spent a couple of weeks talking about baptism and so Zach talked about kind of uh, the history of baptism, uh, church history, and then uh, I, I spent some time talking about uh, baptism as we see it in Scripture. And then we're doing the same thing with communion. So last week, Zach talked about uh, the kind of church history uh, as it relates to the subject of communion. And, uh, and so we talked about uh, the Catholic view of communion, which is transubstantiation. That is that the elements, the, the bread and the wine, actually are, are transformed so that they, they actually become the actual material uh, body and blood of Christ. And then we saw that, uh, that Luther disagreed with that. The Lutheran view was called consubstantiation, which is the idea that Christ is physically present in the elements, but the elements themselves don't uh, transform. So there's actually four things in the elements. You have body, blood, bread, and wine. Uh, and then we saw Calvin's view, which was kind of a real spiritual presence, that, uh, that Christ is not physically present uh, in the elements, but that He is spiritually present in the elements. And then Zwingli had a memorial view which is that it's, uh, it's merely a symbol or a sign. And, uh, and so we saw that, uh, that uh, we would hold something that is more akin to the third uh, or fourth view uh, of that. And so that's the historical view. And then what we want to do this week is we want to talk about communion, particularly within uh, the New Testament. And so kind of consider more of the biblical, theological, not just the historical aspects of the meal. So I want to start with a reminder of our definition from last week. So if you're here, you heard this before, it's on your notes as well, but uh, the definition uh, is that communion is an enduring ordinance instituted by Christ whereby Christians regularly partake of a sacred meal of bread and wine to fellowship with other Christians. Remember Jesus' atoning sacrifice, look forward to the joy of Christ's coming, and personally partake of and fellowship with Christ Himself. All right, so that's the definition that we're uh, working with. And so I want to talk about uh, 10 things that you should know about communion from a biblical theological perspective, 10 things that you should know about communion in addition to all the historical things that we talked about last week. And so that's what we'll do today, 10 things to know about communion. Number one, we mentioned this last week. But as a reminder, the word communion, if you do a, uh, like a Bible search online or something like that for the word communion, that word is nowhere in uh, the, uh, the Scripture. And so at least if you're looking at the NASB or the ESV or something like that, in 1 Corinthians 11, you have that it's called the Lord's Supper. Historically, it's also known as the Lord's Table or just sometimes the table. If someone is saying uh, we're going to partake of the table, that's what they are referring to. It's also known historically as the Eucharist, which is uh, from the Greek uh, for giving thanks. It's, it's where we give thanks to the Lord for His sacrifice. Uh, it's also historically known as the agape uh, or a love feast. 
And, uh, and then also sometimes you'll see it just as breaking bread. So, uh, so whenever you're reading the New Testament and you'll see a reference to them breaking bread, uh, almost always that is uh, them celebrating communion. And so communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, the table, the Lord's table, Eucharist, the agape, breaking bread, all of those referring to the same uh, act. So that's the first thing to know about communion, just some of the synonyms that you'll see throughout Scripture uh, for uh, the meal, because the word communion itself is not uh, used in Scripture. Second, the institution of communion is seen in the Gospels. That's where you see what is uh, instituted by Christ in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and then it's theologically expounded in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. And so you see kind of the imagery, the meaning of communion in the Gospels with its institution, and then you see kind of the practice and the implications, the theological implications in 1 Corinthians. So you see the institution in the Gospels, and then you see Paul's kind of exposition uh, of it and uh, his correction of some abuses of the practice in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. So there's other passages that touch upon communion. Uh, besides just the, what we see in the Gospels and in 1 Corinthians, but those are the primary texts for developing our theology on the topic. The third thing that you should know about communion, the first two we went through really quickly. Uh, from here on out, I'm going to be somewhat more long-winded. So the third thing that you should know about communion is that communion has its roots in the Old Testament Passover festival. In fact, the first Lord's Supper was a Passover meal. You're probably familiar with this. When Jesus institutes the meal, He does so during a Passover feast. So in a sense, the first communion is actually the final Passover. And what was Passover? Well, Passover was this feast that Jews would celebrate. It was commanded by God uh, as a celebratory remembrance of, uh, of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. When, uh, when the angel of the Lord had passed over the people of Israel and uh, the death of the firstborn of all the, the Egyptians, and so Israel was then led out of slavery. So Passover is this celebration of the fact that God has delivered His people from slavery. And uh, so that was Passover. And what did Passover look like? And so I want to give you kind of a, a, an overview of, of what history teaches us a traditional Passover meal would have looked like. Now, we don't know exactly what it would have looked like, in uh, 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. or whenever it is that Jesus is actually instituting it. Most of our records are actually uh, post-70 A.D. and the growth of the rabbinical school where there begins to, to uh, become uh, less of an emphasis on uh, the temple and, uh, and Old Testament Judaism because the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. And so some of our records are actually uh, past that, but it would have probably looked something like, uh, like the following, so somewhat similar if not the same. You would begin with this prayer of thanks. That's how you would begin uh, the meal as we typically begin uh, meals in our context. And then you would have the first cup of wine. So it, uh, in a Passover meal, uh, you would actually have four cups of wine. You begin with the prayer of thanks and then you have your first cup of wine followed by a ceremonial hand washing. So there's this uh, ritualistic sort of hand washing that takes place followed by the eating of, uh, of bitter herbs. So you'd eat these bitter herbs as a reminder of how bitter slavery was, the bitterness of, uh, of slavery. And so you'd, you'd eat them as a symbol of that. And then you would sing uh, the Hallel, uh, typically Psalms 113 and 114. You would sing those uh, together. And then you'd have the second cup of wine, 
and then you would have a second hand washing. Then the child or kind of the youngest member of the group would uh, ask this question, this very important question. Uh, he would say, what makes this meal different from all other meals? Why is this meal distinct? Why, is this, why are we doing this? Why are we eating this lamb and eating these bitter herbs? And why are we having all of this wine? And why are we doing all of these things? Why is this meal different from all the other meals that we celebrate throughout the, uh, the year? And then the family, uh, the father of the family or the head of the group or whatever it might be, would stand up and he would give the Haggadah. He would give the explanation of that. He would answer the child's question. He would say, this is why this meal is distinct. And he would explain basically the deliverance that Israel has uh, experienced from Egyptian slavery. And so that would take place. Then you would eat the lamb. You would, this is kind of the central part of the meal where you eat the lamb as a symbol of the lamb that was sacrificed so that you could spread the blood uh, on the door as a sign of, uh, of God's favor. And then you would drink, uh, I'm sorry, you eat the lamb with unleavened bread. That was an important part. Uh, and then you would drink the third cup of wine. Then you would sing uh, another Hallel, uh, typically Psalms 115, 16, 17, and 18. So you'd sing Psalms 115 through 118. Then you would drink the fourth cup of wine, and then that would be the end, right? So that sounds pretty fun, right? That's kind of a whole, you can imagine, this would not be like uh, when we sit down for a meal and we might have you know, your meal might be five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, or if it's, you know, really fun or something like that, you might sit there for an hour and a half or something like that. This would have taken hours upon hours upon hours for you to have this celebratory uh, meal. So somewhere in there or something like that, again, we don't know that this is actually what it looked like in Jesus's day, but this is certainly what it looked like uh, within a generation or so of that, somewhere in that or something like that, Christ instituted uh, communion. And unsurprisingly, because of the relationship between communion and Passover, they share certain similarities. In fact, the New Testament would call Christ our Passover lamb. Look at 1 Corinthians 5-7. It's in your notes. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. You see even there uh, symbolism. I said that you eat the lamb with the unleavened bread. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Christ is called the Passover lamb. Not only that, but both of these practices, both of these uh, institutions are going to uh, speak about and celebrate and remember the concept of redemption. Whereas Passover is this celebration of physical redemption, you have physically been redeemed from slavery to Egypt. Communion is this sign of, uh, of spiritual uh, redemption, that you have been delivered from uh, a, a far worse tyrant than, uh, the, than Pharaoh. You have been delivered from the dominion of Satan. And uh, so Colossians 1, 13 through 14 he, that's uh, Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, or uh, here in this context is God the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So both communion and Passover speak of, uh, of redemption, Passover of physical slavery, and, uh, and communion of spiritual slavery to sin and to Satan and to yourself and all of these sorts of things. Now, does that mean that Passover and communion are basically just the same thing then? Well, no, it doesn't. Uh, what we see biblically is that they are similar, they're related, but they're not the same. 
As we might say that circumcision, we talked about this a little bit with baptism, circumcision is similar to baptism. Circumcision is a sign of the old covenant, uh, and uh, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. As they are similar yet distinct, so Passover is similar to yet distinct from communion. The, The meaning of Passover has been fulfilled. It's the same reason we don't celebrate the seventh-day Sabbath or obey the various food laws or teach circumcision now. Uh, The Passover has been fulfilled in Christ, and now in its place we have communion. So communion is the substance of which Passover is the shadow. Passover has been fulfilled uh, in uh, Christ. Number four, God's people are commanded to partake of communion. So we're no longer commanded to celebrate Passover. We are not uh, Jews living under the Mosaic Covenant. So we're no longer commanded to celebrate Passover, but we are explicitly commanded in Scripture to partake of communion. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So not only do you have the historical and biblical example of kind of the description of the fact that the early church was regularly practicing communion, but you have an actual prescription here that uh, Paul says, that Jesus says, do this. That's a command. Uh, It's not a mere suggestion. It's not an optional, voluntary sort of uh, thing. To refuse to regularly participate and partake of communion is sinful, it's spiritually unhealthy, and it's dangerous. You're commanded uh, to partake of communion. Now, how often should we take it? The Bible doesn't explicitly say, although I think there are hints toward weekly participation. Historically, it was taken uh, weekly, but later traditions, especially later Protestant uh, traditions, began taking it monthly or maybe even uh, only a few times a year. Here at Parkway, we take it uh, every week for a few reasons. And so let me give you five reasons that we take uh, communion each and every week. The first one is that the Bible seems to imply uh, regular participation regularly partaking of the meal. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 20. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because, now look at this phrase, it'll come up a number of times, because when you come together, when you assemble, when you congregate, it is not for the better but for the worse, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, uh, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that, uh, that you eat. So notice there is this reference to the Lord's Supper and that it uh, has to do with when you come together. Now, when do we as a church come together? There's a sense in which you come together with your community group when you meet with them, but the only time that Parkway corporately comes together, the only time that we corporately assemble is whenever we come together on a weekly basis for the proclamation of the Word and the participation in, uh, in communion. So that's one of the reasons that we uh, take of it uh, regularly, uh, weekly in fact. Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. So again, there's this, this uh, hint that we see in Scripture to a regular uh, participation in, uh, in the meal. It's not an infrequent sort of thing. The early church is doing it as often as they assemble, as often as they come together. This is a central part of their liturgy. It's a central part of what they do when they come together. And, uh, and so that's the first reason. The Bible seems to imply this regular, in fact, uh, uh, every time that they were to gather together, uh, partaking. A second reason is the early church seemed to partake as often as they formally gathered. This is an implication of the point we just made. Look at Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Again, we already talked about the breaking of bread is a reference to the act of communion, when Christ breaks the bread. And, uh, and so uh, they are devoting themselves to this on a regular, ongoing basis. So as often as they get together, they participate in communion. Or Acts 27, on the first day of the week, when they were, look at this phrase, they were gathered together with what purpose? To break bread. The purpose of their meal together, the purpose of their assembling together was to participate in uh, communion. And Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. We're going to do that one day. We're just going to preach all the way till midnight. Probably me. I'm long-winded. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that uh, you eat. Now, notice what, what's happening here. Paul is rebuking them. He says, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Uh, he's rebuking them for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, something that we'll discuss uh, shortly. But the point is that they are eating the supper whenever they come together. That's the second reason the early church seemed to partake as often as they formally gathered. Anytime they gathered, they would partake of the meal. So whenever we gather on a weekly basis, we should partake of the meal. A third reason, the imagery of spiritual nourishment implies regular participation. Think about it like this. You don't occasionally breathe, right? You don't just occasionally eat or something like that. Uh, You don't eat uh, like once a month or, uh, you know, once every few months or something like that, the, the fact that you, you are needing to be constantly nourished is a sign that you should be constantly eating. Likewise, you are in need of constant spiritual nourishment, right? Doing so infrequently, if you were to only eat, um, you know, once every five days or once every ten days or something like that, that would lead to a whole lot of disease and disorder and unhealth uh, in uh, your life. If your bodies need regular physical nourishment, how much more do our spirits and our souls need uh, spiritual nourishment? So our hearts, our minds, our spirits, they need this regular nourishment as we feast upon uh, not only the Word of Christ, but the body and blood of Christ. So the imagery of nourishment uh, implies regular participation. A fourth reason that we partake on a, a weekly basis is because this keeps us tethered to the gospel. It keeps us from preaching mere moralism or humanism or just kind of a feel-good sort of sermon because one of the things that we always try to do, uh, you'll notice this here at Parkway, is we always try, we may not always accomplish it, but we always try to tether the table to the text. Somehow what we want to do is we want to say uh, what we're doing is we're preaching Christ crucified in all of our messages. No matter what we're preaching, whether we're preaching from Romans or from Jonah or from Habakkuk or from Proverbs or whatever it might be, we're always trying to somehow get that to the message of the kingdom of God. 
And, uh, and communion is the meal of the gospel. That's what communion is. And so, in a sense, if all of our messages are getting to Christ and Christ crucified somehow, then it's this natural sort of development that it goes uh, to uh, the Lord's table. And so, if we are uh, participating or partaking of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis, it kind of keeps us uh, from drifting into preaching a message that's just do better or be better or stop sinning or whatever it might be. Are those implications uh, that you should stop sinning? Absolutely. But is that the primary point of a biblical passage? No. The primary point of the biblical passage is Christ and Christ crucified and the kingdom of God. And so us partaking on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, make sure that our texts are kind of tethered, anchored to the message of, uh, of the gospel. And then the last reason that we partake weekly is because church tradition leans heavily toward weekly participation. Uh, like we had mentioned last week, almost all traditions up until the Protestant Reformation participated uh, on a weekly basis, whether that is uh, Eastern Orthodoxy or uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, look at the uh, first century uh, document, uh, the Didache, that says, Every Lord's Supper, gather yourselves, uh, every Lord's Day, sorry, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving after having confessed your transgressions. So within a generation. The first century, you have this document of church traditions that says that uh, the early church was doing this every single Lord's Day or every single Sunday. Look at what Calvin says, we ought always to provide that no meeting of the church is held without the word, prayer, the dispensation of the supper, and alms. We may gather from Paul that this was the order observed by the Corinthians, and it is certain that this was the practice many ages uh, after. So, in fact, the reformers, the original reformers themselves, were all for weekly participation. It was only uh, later reformers who, uh, who began to move it toward a less frequent uh, thing. So, as we often say, the fact that something is historical, the fact that something is a tradition that's handed down to us, doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. After all, we celebrate the fact that Luther changed thousands of years of tradition, uh, but it should provide the default, the starting point for us. In other words, the burden of proof should always be on the one who wants to upend tradition, who wants to upend the history that's been handed down uh, from us. And so having that sort of mindset will save you from a world of, of difficulties. Now, there's one objection that uh, I've often heard when it comes to weekly participation. That is, if you do it too often, it kind of becomes rote. It, root, it just becomes this sort of empty, vain sort of routine. What's interesting is we don't say the same of preaching. We don't say, therefore, we should not preach every week, or we should not pray every week, or we should not sing every week, or something like that. In fact, I'd make the exact opposite point. The, when you do something infrequently, you're, you're kind of, uh, the liturgy that you are showing your people is that that thing is less important. And, uh, and that's not what we want to proclaim when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It's not less important than the proclamation of the Word or singing or prayer or something like that. It is as important as, as those things, and so we want to do it as frequently as we do those things. So that's why we do it uh, on a weekly basis. Again, that's not an explicit command of Scripture, but it seems to be uh, the implication and certainly is the historical example that's been passed down to us. Fifth thing that you should know about communion is that baptism should be a prerequisite to partake of communion. We have an article on our website that's called, Should I Take Communion Before Being Baptized? 
The answer uh, to that is no, you should not take communion before being baptized. I want to summarize that paper and then uh, encourage you to read it if this brings up any questions, um, or you can text them in or something like that. How do we know that we should not take communion? Biblically, you should not take communion if you have not been baptized. And so all of this is in that article, but I'll summarize it uh, for you. A few reasons. The first one, you've got to begin by recognizing the context of Scripture all right, and so a lot of people will uh, say, well, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that you have to be baptized before you take communion, but consider this, that question would not come up in the context of the early church since everything that we see in Scripture is that when someone is converted, when someone's regenerated, when someone is born again, they are immediately baptized. There's no delay process. So in, in our context, in our culture, someone might get saved, and it might be weeks, months, years before they are uh, baptized. That does not exist within Scripture. That's a weird sort of modern cultural phenomenon that does not exist within, uh, within the pages of the New Testament. Someone is saved, they're born again, and they are immediately baptized. That very day, that very moment, that very hour, they are immediately baptized. So, uh, it would have been really foreign and strange for the apostles to answer this question because that uh, sort of subcategory doesn't exist. The person who is a believer but has not been baptized but is gathering with the church in order to partake of communion. Does that make sense? We wouldn't expect the Bible to answer this question because that category didn't exist. It's kind of like saying, why doesn't the, the Bible talk about computers? Why doesn't the Bible talk about cars or something? Well, they don't exist. We don't expect uh, it to, uh, to come up. And so if someone was in a gathering, if someone was in a church gathering and they wanted to take communion, but they weren't baptized, the people that were there would not have said, you can take communion anyway. What would they have said? Let's go baptize you right now, and then we'll come back, and then we'll, we'll partake of communion uh, with you. That would have uh, been the definite order. So that's the first thing that you have to recognize is the context of Scripture. And so we have this weird sort of delayed baptism uh, culture that's been handed down to us. That is not the biblical pattern. Second thing that you should note is the Old Testament pattern seems to show this, uh, this imagery uh, that would lead us to say that you should be baptized first and then partake of communion. In the Old Testament, the Israelites ate of the manna only after having passed through the waters of the Red Sea. So you go through the Red Sea, 1 Corinthians 10 actually calls that a baptism, you're baptized in the Red Sea, and then you begin to partake of this miracle bread that God provides, uh, the manna. Or Leviticus 16, the priests offered sacrifices only after having been cleansed in the waters of purification. Again, you see this imagery of cleansing, of baptism first, followed by uh, sacrifice, followed by eating, followed by these sorts of things. And then I think this is really uh, instructive. In Exodus 12, the Passover meal was explicitly restricted to those who had been circumcised. Let's read this, Exodus 12, 48. If a stranger, stranger shall show sojourn, man, that is a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and eat it. He shall be a native of the land. Listen to this, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Exodus 12, 43 through 44, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after 
you have circumcised him. So if circumcision relates to baptism, and if Passover relates to communion, you have this sort of clear Old Testament pattern for only participating in communion if you have already been baptized. Not only do you have this Old Testament pattern, but you have a New Testament pattern. You have Christ and His disciples were all baptized before partaking of the supper. You also have Paul, who was baptized, and then uh, in Acts 9 it says that he took food to be strengthened. It's likely that would have been his uh, first participation in communion. In fact, here at, uh, at Parkway, uh, if someone is baptized, we will put the elements in that room for them. So immediately after they are baptized, they can then participate in communion, hopefully for the first time. And, uh, and so that's what you see there. Or within the context of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. You see, baptism is this sort of foundational, visible entrance into the uh, covenant community. Uh, you baptize, and then you teach them to uh, observe all that is commanded, including uh, communion. So, in other words, there's this certain order to the early church's ministry that early converts were baptized first, and only then were they instructed and assembled together to break bread and to pray. A fourth reason that, uh, that we would encourage only those who have been baptized to partake, partake of communion is because of this theological implication we talked about it a bit last week. We'll talk about it a bit more uh, in a little bit. But the Bible warns us against partaking of the, uh, the Lord's Supper of communion in an unworthy manner or without uh, repentance. And, uh, and so I think participating in the meal without already having been obedient to Christ's command to be baptized would be an example of taking it in an unworthy manner. Now, that's not what Paul's deal dealing with in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, because that phenomenon doesn't exist, but I think it would certainly uh, apply. Uh, in light of that, consider Matthew 5. So think about this in Matthew 5, 23 through 24 where Christ says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now take that sort of principle, that general overarching principle that uh, Christ is expounding and apply that to the general idea of baptism and communion. If you're about to take part, uh, partake of communion and then realize, you know what, I haven't been baptized, then you should leave the elements there. Go and get baptized, then come back and take of the, uh, the elements. So that's the theological implication. And then lastly, historical considerations, all right? The history of the tradition that's been handed down to us. Again, from the Didache, uh, written between 50 and 75 A.D. or so, so around the same time that the, uh, the epistles and gospels and those kinds of things are being written and circulated, uh, it says that this, but let no one eat or drink of the Eucharist, except those who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning this, do not give what is holy to dogs. Or Justin Martyr, uh, his first apology written between 160 or 170 A.D., so sometime in the second century, he says, this food is called among us the Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true. So you've got to be a believer. And who has been washed with the washing, which is a poetic reference to uh, baptism. So you see the early church is going to practice this. What's interesting is that the next reference that I have there will be from Charles Spurgeon. You'll note, though, that I don't have anything from Augustine or Calvin 
or Luther or something like that. I spent 10 minutes, uh, so I'm just confessing this to my shame, I spent 10 minutes looking for something by one of these sort of, uh, you know, beacons uh, in church history on this particular topic, and I didn't find anything, and then it suddenly occurred to me after 10 minutes, I shouldn't expect to see anything. Why not? Yeah, because they're all paedo-baptists, right? And, uh, and so there would not have been an opportunity for them to have referenced this sort of thing because everyone was baptized as an infant. So there was no unbaptized person to partake of uh, communion. So that just is an example of sometimes I'm foolish. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, and, uh, the great uh, Baptist uh, preacher uh, in London, he says, you sinners have to exercise faith in Christ before you have anything to do You, as sinners, have to exercise faith in Christ before you have anything to do with believer's baptism. You have to come to Christ Himself before you're qualified to come to the Lord's table. As soon as you have, by faith, received Jesus Christ Himself as your Savior, the tokens and emblems of His death will become instructive to you. But until Jesus Christ is holy, yours hands off all these holy things. So he seems to imply that there is this order. You come to Christ, and then you're baptized, and then you partake of of communion. The New Hampshire Baptist Confession of 1883, this is just, uh, there's a number of other confessions that we could have referenced, Uh, but it says there, we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. talks about what it is. Look at the last uh, part there, it should be in bold, that it is a prerequisite to the privileges of a church relation and the Lord's Supper. The Southern Baptist Convention, 2000, Baptist Faith and Message, says that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water and so forth. Look at the very last phrase there. It is prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. This is really fascinating. I'll occasionally be talking to someone, uh, oftentimes someone in a Southern Baptist church, uh, which uh, by definition has to ascribe to the Baptist faith and message. I'll be talking with someone and they will say they've never heard this before, uh, that this seems really nitpicky or legalistic or it's divisive or something like that to say that you can't take communion until you're baptized. Um, But considering the fact that this is the view of the church throughout history, whether you're Anglican or Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist or whatever it might be, that seems like a really misplaced criticism. Biblically, who's being more divisive? Biblically, who's being more arrogant? The one who follows the traditions that have been handed down and the patterns that you see in Scripture, or the one who simply dismisses them because they don't like them or they've never heard it before or something uh, like that, without any sort of exegetical evidence, just simply um, not holding to it. At the end of the day, if you find yourself really concerned, we're denying someone communion, I would just encourage you to be as equally concerned that that person is denying themselves of baptism, all right? So the, the, the solution, I would say yes and amen. It is a tragic thing if someone is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and they have not been, they are not able to partake of communion. Absolutely, yes and amen. But what is the solution to that? You then encourage that person to also participate in the grace that is baptism. So don't, be, don't hold to this sort of high view of communion and neglect the high view of baptism as well. If someone is desperate to take communion, they should also be desperate to be baptized. Otherwise, there's a deep inconsistency there. Sixth thing, communion involves the use of tangible elements, bread and wine. Similar to baptism's use of water, uh, communion is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. We physically partake of the bread and wine as a sign of our spiritual participation 
with Christ. And so as we mentioned before, as regularly eating physical food sustains our bodies, so regularly eating of this spiritual food sustains our spirit. So in a sense, you might say that there's something a bit lacking in, uh, in most of our modern practices of communion. There's something about the use of a little tasteless cracker and, and a little shot of juice that kind of obscures the fact that this meal is supposed to be a feast. This meal is supposed to be about, uh, about joy. Uh, I think we're supposed to imagine sort of the taste and the smell of fresh bread if you are starving of hunger or the taste of your favorite beverage if you're, uh, if you're thirsty. That's what communion is intended to, to communicate. And so in a sense, when we do this little cracker and this little shot of juice, we're actually selling short the symbolism that it's supposed to do. So why do we do cracker and, uh, and a little mini cup of juice? The short answer to that is logistics. If we could think of a better way uh, without sacrificing the proclamation of the word or prayer or singing or something like that, which is also central to the gathering, uh, and serve 300-plus people each week, then certainly we would be more than willing uh, to do that. But then that brings up the question, is it acceptable on our part, if the Bible is going to command bread and wine, is it acceptable for us to use a cracker and juice? And so this is an area where the elders are currently wrestling. We're kind of wrestling with how do we be as consistent and as biblical and as faithful as, uh, as possible? And, uh, and so is that really inconsistent? I want to give uh, two thoughts uh, to that. Um, so again, this is a, a question that our elders are bantering about or trying to work through to see what is the way that we can be as consistent as possible within the sort of boundaries of just logistics. Again, we, we have 300 people versus in an early church where they might have had 30 people or something uh, like that. So we have to take into account we're in a different cultural uh, context. Uh, and, but I do want you to hear we, are, uh, we don't ever want to simply dismiss something uh, we are uh, trying to work through how can we be as faithful as possible. That said, I certainly don't think that we are being actually unfaithful in regards to using cracker and, uh, and juice. If we were suggesting like Snickers and Sunkissed or something, I think that's certainly a little bit too far. That's a bit of a stretch. But I think the general idea of communion is conveyed with the uh, cracker and, uh, and juice. And, uh, and so kind of relate that to, uh, to baptism. Are we being inconsistent because we spent all this time talking about how baptism has to be uh, by immersion and of a believer or whatever it might be? I think that a cracker and juice are still communicating, at least on a base level, the, the symbol of communion, whereas sprinkling uh, does not communicate the command to be immersed. That's the biblical command, to be baptized, to be immersed. And so... Um, that's my, uh, my thoughts on, uh, on that particular thing. So, uh, communion involves these tangible elements. It's intended to kind of point us to this feast and this joy and festivity and happiness and all those kinds of things. And so, uh, even if we can't quite capture that in our context, that should be where our minds uh, go. And, uh, and the elders are, are actively working on trying to figure out, is there a way that we can be more consistent on those things? Number seven, communion has past and future perspectives. We sometimes talk about this during communion in our services. It has past and future perspectives. We are to do it in remembrance of Christ, but also with a view to the future marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. As Jesus said, He wouldn't drink of the wine again until what? Until the kingdom of God fully comes. He says that in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, which implies that there is this 
future orientation to the meal. As we partake, we're not only looking backward to Christ's death, we're also looking forward to Christ's return. It's, 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 in a sense, it's a prophetic symbol or a proleptic symbol. It's the symbol of this future grace. It points us forward to the day when, when He will drink again of this cup of the, the kingdom, and we will drink it with, with Him. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So you see here both past and future. What's the past? You remember Christ's death. You proclaim Christ's death. What's the future? You proclaim His death until He comes. Again, in other words, we partake with a view to this future return of Christ. So communion has past and future perspectives. Number eight, communion also has vertical and horizontal dimensions. Vertical and horizontal dimensions. In other words, we commune with Christ, but also we commune with each other. We do it in remembrance of Christ, but also in view of our shared participation in Christ. You see that even in the wordplay on the, uh, the phrase body of Christ, right? We partake of the bread, which is the body of Christ, but what else is referred to as the body of Christ in Scripture? The church, right? So even as we're partaking of the body of Christ, we are reminded we are the body of Christ. And so there is this sense in which we're communing not only with Christ, but we're communing with each other uh, as well. We're reminded of our unity with each other as we partake of the elements. Or consider 1 Corinthians 11, which, uh, which begins with this, this rebuke of the disunity being proclaimed in communion there in Corinth that some are taking the meal before others had arrived, which kind of undercuts that. That's the reason that we take the elements together, that whenever that tray is passed, that you don't just instantly get it and shoot that juice and and shoot that uh, piece of uh, cracker or whatever it might be, uh, that there is this waiting. So we all partake of it uh, together. 1 Corinthians 11, 21, Paul says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another uh, gets uh, drunk. So apparently some people were getting there early, drinking all the communion wine. Other people were showing up. They were having, uh, and they had none. And, uh, and so this uh, rebuke of the disunity being proclaimed in communion because communion is intended to proclaim unity. And you see it's doing the exact opposite in Corinth. And then lastly, consider 1 Corinthians 10, which says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Again, the focus on communion is not just between you and Jesus. The focus of communion is between you and Jesus and you and the church. There is this uh, vertical and also this horizontal uh, dimension. As we often say here, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You do not and cannot ever have a private relationship with Jesus Christ. That does not exist. When you are rescued from sin, you are rescued into the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ. You are a member of the body of Christ. You are not the bride of Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ. Whereas the medieval church tended to depersonalize the faith, modern culture has swung the pendulum to the other end and made it too Americanized and uh, privatized. So what should you think about during communion? You should think about Christ, you should think about yourself, and you should think about others. This is why sometimes we will have you just do introspection. Sometimes we'll have you think about the promises of God. Sometimes we'll have you awkwardly look around at each other during communion with the hope being that one day that's not awkward for us because it shouldn't be awkward for us because that's a primary meaning of communion, that we commune with each other. There's this corporate aspect to it. 
Ninth, communion is about remembrance, confession, and proclamation. Remembrance, do this in remembrance of me, Christ says. Confession, both confession of truth, that Christ gave himself for us, that he died for us, that we're loved, that we're forgiven. We confess these truths as we partake. But not only do we confess these truths, we also confess our sins in this act. The Bible commands us to examine ourselves uh, before we partake of uh, communion so that we don't take it in an unworthy manner, as our last point is going to explain. It's why we say that if you're under uh, kind of uh, righteous church discipline or if you're living in unrepentant sin, you shouldn't partake. You should first repent and then partake. By the way, this is an argument also against paedo-communion which is the idea that unbaptized children or even baptized infants should partake of communion. If they're not old enough to grasp the meaning and to remember the gospel and to repent of their sin, then they're not old enough to partake. So there's repentance, I'm sorry, there's remembrance, there's confession of truth and confession of sin, and then there's also proclamation. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Again, this is another argument for regular participation. It's part of the liturgy of the church. It's a way that we proclaim the gospel, not with our words, but with this symbol. And, uh, and so we proclaim the gospel as we preach, but we also proclaim the, the gospel as we baptize and as we participate in communion. There's these symbols, these signs, these pictures of these biblical truths. And then the last thing is that the practice of communion is sacred and its neglect or misuse is severe. This is a weird one, but uh, the Bible talks about it, and so it's something that we need to be familiar with. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 32, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Again, this is a really strange passage for a few reasons. One of the main is that we see here that God judges Christians. Not like the ultimate judgment of condemnation. In fact, you'll see the opposite. God judges so that we may not be condemned. What's that mean? What well, seems as though these believers are taking communion in an unworthy manner, and therefore God disciplines them through sickness or even through death. All right, so think about that next time you partake of communion. This is a really big and weighty and uh, severe deal. Taking communion in an unworthy manner is a very big deal in, uh, in the Bible. Does that mean that you have to wait until you're worthy to partake of communion? No, you're never worthy. Right? But part of your recognition in communion is recognizing I'm not worthy, but Christ is worthy. So what does it mean to partake in an unworthy manner? Well, in the context, it means uh, at least sort of three things. First, a callous disregard for others in the body of Christ. We talked about this. People were showing up early and getting drunk uh, and not waiting and not saving any bread or wine or whatever it might be for others. That would certainly be taking it in an unworthy manner without a view of others in, uh, in the meal. Another way uh, that you might partake in an unworthy manner is an attempt to combine participation in pagan or demonic feasts with participation at the Lord's table. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that's the context 
there. So if you were to try to combine the Lord's Supper and some sort of pagan uh, feast to another god, that would be uh, an unworthy participation in it. And then lastly, a flippant disregard for what the elements represent would also be that. In the context of 1 Corinthians 11, again, it could be involved getting drunk on communion wine or hogging all the food before others arrive. Um, so, this isn't something, I don't mention this in order to cause you to avoid communion. I'm not saying that you should avoid communion or live in perpetual terror that God is going to make you sick or kill you or something like that. It's just something that should cause you to live a life of repentance. That's what this is just calling us toward, is to live a life of repentance. If you're unwilling to repent, then this is a strong warning against taking the elements because even if others are deceived, Christ is not. So when should you avoid communion in light of this? If you come to church drunk, then yeah, you probably shouldn't partake of communion. If you're on the front row and you just start, you grab every single little cup there and you just start shooting them down uh, one after another. But more realistically, in our context, if you have ever been rightfully uh, removed from a church for church discipline and not been reconciled through that church through repentance, uh, if, uh, if you're living in unrepentant, unconfessed sin, you should not partake of communion. Not just that you have sin, that's all of us, but unconfessed, unrepentant sin, in which case you should not uh, partake. Instead, you should confess. That's what the Bible is calling you to, to confess, to repent. If you looked at pornography last night, or if you screamed at your husband this morning or something uh, like that, I'm not telling you not to take communion. Instead, I'm telling you to repent and then to partake of uh, communion. Maybe that's a silent prayer on your seat. Maybe you need to ask your spouse to step out into the hall first in order to confess. Maybe you grab a buddy from your community group or something uh, like that. Um, but uh, you have to repent before partaking or you very well might end up taking in this unworthy manner and subject yourself to God's discipline. I want to end with this sort of application. So we just kind of talked about the severity, the weight of communion. So I want to go back and remind us of the good, the power, the grace, the blessing, the goodness of, uh, of communion so that we might long for it. So I want to end with this, that communion is a promise to you. That's what communion is. It's a promise to you. It encourages you. It strengthens you. It actually nourishes you. Somehow, mysteriously, in God's grace, it strengthens you. It encourages you. It's a symbol, but it's also more than a symbol somehow. God is mediating some degree of sanctifying grace in that moment. So if you gave in to some sort of sin last night, that's all the more reason to be here the next morning so that you might be refreshed by the Word and by the sacrament. You don't clean yourself up in order for you to gather together and to listen to the Word and to sing and to partake of communion. Likewise, if you're spiritually dry, if you're hurting, don't neglect the very means of grace that God has provided. That's too common in our culture where people skip church uh, because they feel depressed or they're discouraged or they're tired, or they feel too dirty or something like that. So they neglect the very means that God gives, gives to, clean, to clean and to strengthen and to encourage and to refresh His people. That's kind of like saying, I'm too sick to go to the doctor. I'm too sick to take medicine. I'm too tired to rest or something like that. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so may we as a church respect the sanctity of the meal but also long for it with hope and with joy and anticipation as we consider Christ's death and future return and as we look not only at ourselves, 
but at this little church that God has given to us for our discipleship and our sanctification and our good. So, with that said, Zach, you want to come up and we'll do some Q&A. All right. Uh, let me first give you my favorite question that somebody texted in. Can you sing the Hallel for us so we can better understand what was happening in Passover? So let's all sing it together. Shema. I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. So that's a great question. Okay. Uh, several people had the same question about the timing of conversion to baptism. And so I'm just going to read one person's question on this because several people asked the same question. <clears throat> if in biblical times... People were baptized immediately after salvation. One, why do we first take time to make sure someone's faith is authentic before baptism? That's a great question. And two, uh, it is often said that a believer cannot know the exact day or time of salvation. If that is true, what does that mean about the immediate baptism of believers in biblical times? So basically the question is, in the New Testament, everybody that gets baptized has gotten saved like the same day or very uh, closely therein. Uh, why then would we wait or delay or something like that today? So uh, here is how I would phrase it, and then I'll, I'll kick it to you for your thoughts. The, the question is not, should we baptize someone immediately, or should we wait a long time? Sometimes the early church waited up to three years to catechize the people and teach them theology before they baptized them. Here's the best way I think that you should do it. You should baptize somebody as soon as it's clear that they're a Christian and that's very clear in the book of Acts. So the issue is not timing. It's not they said that they're a Christian and then we immediately baptize them. Notice how obvious it is that they're actually converted in the book of Acts. They're doing things like speaking in tongues and prophesying and burning their witchcraft scrolls and healing people, okay? Those kind of things are evidences that they've been regenerate. So what I would say is you should baptize someone as soon as it appears that they're regenerate. In the Bible, that's often very obvious the same day because there's all these miraculous signs and things like that being given. In a culture, though, like 21st century America where people grow up in church and they might make a profession of faith when they're four but not really mean it, uh, there is some wisdom in waiting to see if somebody actually is a Christian and not immediately rushing them into the baptismal waters for something they might not understand. So I would say that the Bible doesn't command baptize someone right away or command baptize someone the same day. It's baptize someone who's put their faith in Christ, which to the best of your ability seems to be somewhat clear, which is what you see. But I'll kick it to you for further comment. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good sort of way to think about it is, is the biblical principle is baptize as soon as there is enough uh, rationale or evidence for someone's conversion. So you got to think in the context of the, uh, the early church, in the context of the, uh, the time of the New Testament, for you to convert to Christianity is for you to either leave uh, paganism and to take upon yourself this, this uh, new yoke of Christianity, which would have caused you to be ostracized to some degree from uh, your friends and relatives or all that, or you're leaving Judaism, uh, in which case you are being persecuted by fellow Jews. So there is this cost to it. We don't tend to see that cost. Uh, we might. Uh, culture might continue to drift away from being quote-unquote Christianized or something like that, and there might be more of a sort of cultural cost, that, that is not the case uh, for us now. And so, uh, so I think the moment that you begin to see these evidences, and that's, that's all we're looking for. When we meet with somebody to, uh, to talk to them about baptism, whether it's one of your kids or an adult or whatever it might be, all we're looking for are, are there some evidences of regeneration in their life, knowing that we might get that wrong. Even the, uh, the apostles seem to get it wrong with uh, Simon the magician and, uh, and those kinds of things. And, uh, and so... 
Uh, we're just simply looking for, are there, is there enough evidence to say this person has con- been converted? And if so, what we always want to do is say, let's, let's do the baptism as soon as possible after that. All right. Is it appropriate to participate in communion outside of the regular weekly church meeting? I think that's a good question. Uh, I don't have a strong view on this, so I'll give you a tentative view. Um, Both baptism and communion can be done outside of a church service, and there is nothing in the Bible that actually restricts that only a minister can do those. That's kind of later tradition. The Bible doesn't do that. uh, That doesn't restrict. If you're a Christian, you have all the same priest powers as a a minister. We believe in the priesthood of uh, believers. So a baptism done outside of the church that's still a Christian baptism is valid. Communion done outside the church is valid. Now, having said that, why is it typically best to have at least elders involved in the oversight of baptism and communion. It's mainly to prevent abuses, okay? It's mainly to prevent abuses. It's not that those acts are not valid. If you as a dad want to baptize your kid in the swimming pool and they're really a Christian, that is baptism. However, the reason we generally encourage you to do it here at the church and to talk to us first and these kind of things is to keep the sacrament from being abused. There are people who, when they just take communion with them and their buddies, they're not really guarding the table. There are people in unrepentant sin. There are people who kind of rush somebody through baptism, and that person doesn't really understand what's going on, and uh, these kind of things. The church isn't edified because the church doesn't get to see the person be baptized. So if the question is, do they still work? Do they still take? Then yes. If the question, though, is uh, are you open to a lot of abuses? Yes. One of the things you're going to have to wrestle through in your view of communion is, is this a Christian ordinance? Or is this a church ordinance? Is this something just given to Christians, or is it something that's given to uh, local assemblies and local bodies? But those are a few thoughts. Jeffrey, any any thought on those things? Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd give two two examples. Uh, So Casey and I, we did communion at our uh, our wedding. Now, part of the reason we did that is because I worked at a church. All of my friends were at the church, and so basically it was like the, the bulk of our church was just kind of gathered there for the uh, wedding ceremony. And, uh, and so we did it as a congregation, though. I've also been to weddings where uh, the bride and the groom alone, they kind of partake of communion. I don't like that because it tends to neglect the corporate aspect uh, of it. And so I think when you're doing it, you want to see how do I come as close as possible to getting as many of these elements as, as possible. The, uh, the, the, the past orientation, the future orientation, the vertical aspect, the, the horizontal aspect, all of these sorts of things. And so I, I think the danger is when you move it out of the, the, uh, the assembly, out of the, the church sort of setting, the more danger there is that it's going to, to neglect one of these other elements. That doesn't mean you have to avoid it. It just means you have to be more and more careful. All right. Several people asked about uh, communion, the communion elements. Should communion be in unleavened bread and wine or crackers and juice? And if crackers and juice, why grape juice and not apple or some other fruit of the vine? These kind of things. Those are great questions. So the only comment I'll have on this is the elders are actually discussing this right now. So we are talking about what is most faithful to be accurate to the biblical pattern, and also what are acceptable substitutes and non-acceptable substitutes, okay? So we're discussing that right now, so I don't know that I have a a hard answer for you on that right now. Uh, Needless to say, I I agree with Jeff. I I, I don't think you can say if somebody just decides to ever do crackers and juice for the rest of their life, I don't think that they are sinning. I don't think that they've not really taken communion. And so know that I think that's probably an acceptable substitute. Uh, Our goal, though, is always to be as biblical as we can. It's not to just say, Jesus, you knew 
that people would struggle with alcoholism and you knew that things could be abused, but we think we're wiser than you and we want to do it this new way. We have to be careful of thinking that we're wiser than, uh, than the scriptures. And so that doesn't mean those other ways are wrong, but we are wrestling through that right now. And uh, I don't think that we have an, uh, an official stance on that as of 10.01 today. But Jeff, any other comments you want to give on that? Yeah, I would just say uh, you got to avoid two ends, uh, uh, kind of two sides, two extremes. One is to say the historical and biblical practice is unimportant. The other one is to not recognize that uh, there is an aspect in which as our uh, context changes, there might have to be some aspects in which we are changing some elements. Uh, so for instance, they are passing one cup and one cup only, and everyone is drinking from the same cup. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's weird hygienically, right? And uh, so for everybody to drink of the same cup, and then imagine that in a context where we have 300 and something people, and so we're having to then refill that cup multiple times. I mean, you're talking about a communion process is going to take uh, at least an hour just for communion. And uh, to be able to take one loaf, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, how do we get as close as possible, recognizing the, the fact that we are in a different culture, a different context, where we have a different number of people and all of those kinds of things. And so uh, what I can say is our elders are committed to being as biblical as possible, but also have to be realistic about the time and place uh, that we, uh, we live. And so we can uh, probably talk about that more here in the next couple of months as we reach hopefully some degree of consensus and resolution on this topic. That's all we had. Those are the only questions. Great. You want to pray for us? Sure. All right. Father, thank you for uh, your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for the gift of communion. I pray that uh, you would create in our hearts uh, both a, a, a reverence of it, a, a healthy a fear and trembling as we partake, that we might not partake in an unworthy manner, but also just a healthy love and appreciation for the blessing of communion, that we might actually believe what is biblically and theologically true, that somehow, mysteriously, you commune with us through this meal, that somehow your Son is uh, spiritually present uh, with us as we partake. And so there is grace in this meal, and so that we might not feel too dirty to partake of it, Lord, but that we would um, uh, do so with uh, repentant and humble and contrite hearts. Uh, with uh, great appreciation for what you have done and also with a, uh, a future perspective of what you will do when you will come and you will uh, completely vanquish uh, the enemies that are already defeated. And so uh, we love you. We look forward uh, to that day. We pray that you prepare our hearts as we go forth from here and consider your word and sing and to, to pray and to partake of communion. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen.